in anticipation of the Christ, his sacrifice, his service and his suffering, Isaiah writes by inspiration of God these words. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Luke in his gospel, Luke in chapter 23, beginning in verse 26, through verse 43, the evangelist narrating the event of the crucifixion to us. Luke 23, 26 through 43. By the same spirit, the apostle says this. And as they led him away, they laid hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people and of women which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things in a green tree, What shall be done in the dry? And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding. And the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors, which were hanged, railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away. But the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. We now see... The Lord Jesus Christ led to what the Reformers and the Puritans identified as his ignominious death. Because it was a death so horrible that one could scarcely contemplate it without being moved to great sorrow, even as the daughters of Jerusalem. So these daughters of Jerusalem are seeing the Christ being led away. And they begin to sorrow. And as they sorrow, Christ would calmly address them by redirecting their sorrow back upon themselves, not upon him, but on themselves, as to what was to befall them in the very near future, described as the Great Tribulation of 70 A.D. But to their confusion, while they were looking at the ignominious death of the Lord Jesus Christ from a physical vantage point, they had missed the real, the real passion, the real pain, and the real horror. Because it was not so much the physical torture that was ignominious, but the fact that he was about to bear the wrath of God. Matthew records for us the next series of events in Matthew 27, 33 and following. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up upon his head this accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Jesus had already told his disciples by this time that this act of wicked aggression would be the culmination of his mission while he was seated with them at the Passover meal, the final Passover meal that he would celebrate with them. Note carefully what he tells them at that meal. First, he tells them that this act of wicked aggression was needful. He tells them that this was his desire to go to the cross. It was his desire before the cross to eat this communion meal with them. He desired with his passion to eat that communion, to commune once and for all with them on this side of the kingdom's coming in a most intimate fashion. 
The Passover meal was a sacred meal. It was a sacred meal which commemorated Israel's liberation from the bondage of Egypt during the days of Moses. But this time, on this night, before the crucifixion, it was to signify much more than that. It was a symbolic celebration of liberation from the bondage of sin, death, and the grave, which would yoke the the saint with the Christ, with the Savior, in an indissolvable union. And so we read in Luke chapter twenty two fourteen, and when the hour was come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. He sat down with them. Now, of course, a very superficial reading of this would say, okay, and he sat down. But the scriptures are very precise, and they account certain things for us, even if it seems incidental. He sat down with them. So this action seems simple enough, at least on the surface, and yet this simple act of sitting down for the Passover meal is highly, I believe, highly significant. Because by sitting down with his disciples, especially in this ceremony, this this Passover ceremony, which was symbolic of a liberation, Christ is anticipating victory. And by sitting down with his disciples, I believe he is setting up a scenario of lordship. And this is why in verse 23 and 24, they all began to discuss the topic of of ruling, of rulership, of sovereignty and authority. Notice in Luke 22, what was being discussed at the Passover meal after Jesus tells them that there is a betrayer among them. In verse 24, and there are also a strife among them. While he's sitting with them, there's a strife among them. What are they discussing? Which of them should be accounted the greatest? So Jesus tells them that they are not to seek to be great. They are not to seek lordship. They are not to seek rulership. They are not to seek to amass authority to themselves, especially over one another as the Gentiles do, but rather they are to be servants one to another. So he says this in Luke twenty-two, twenty-five, and 6. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief, as he that doth serve. So we can know who the heathen are by their desire to lordship over others. The fascists of the world, the authoritative individuals of the world, the tyrants of the world, they are the heathen of the world. Christ had already set forth by this time the idea of being seated humbly, not desiring the chief seat as in the kingdom of God in Luke 13. And we read in Luke 13, 29 and Luke 14, 10. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Another reference to sitting down as in leadership, rulership, authority. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room. That when he had bathed thee cometh, he may say unto thee, Friend, go up higher, then shalt thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with them. So this whole idea of sitting down is very significant. As Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. As the people of God are seated before the throne of God. And so at the Passover meal, Christ is simply reinforcing this idea of sitting in the kingdom as servants rather than as kings. Christ had come to serve. But more than that, he came to suffer and to give himself a sacrifice, a ransom for many. 
which is what he wanted his disciples to embrace as they went forth declaring the kingdom of God, not to be lording over others, but to be serving the people of God. In verse 15, he tells them that he will not eat again until the kingdom of God is fulfilled, or to put it another way, until the kingdom of God is finally inaugurated. Verse 15 and 16, and he says unto them with desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not eat any more thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So within this context of identifying the betrayer, the Passover meal, and the following discussion about servants, he then takes the ceremonial cup and proceeds to deliver the Passover message, the blessing of the New Testament. And this is recorded in 17 through 20. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. So this is a seamless pattern of events the identifying of Judas as the betrayer at this point is also significant since it seems that Judas was at this meal he was there witnessing of the Christ at this Passover meal yet he was unregenerate notice verse 21 but behold the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table and as we have seen This is a frightful reality which teaches us again and again and again that although there be those that are partaking of the communion meal of the Lord Jesus Christ, they may still be without saving grace. Because what saving grace does, it brings you into union with Christ, an intimate communion with the Savior. Any ritual, even the communion meal, does not in and of itself confer saving grace. In Luke 22, 27, Jesus again refers to this act of sitting down. Again, symbolizing rulership and how service is intimately related to the kingdom's work. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serves. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptation. Notice the next phrase of verse 29. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father had appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Now notice the next line. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The Passover meal was connecting the idea of sitting in the kingdom and the exercising of lordship to the liberation ceremony of the Passover meal before Christ's crucifixion. This was so that all those who were called to serve Christ would themselves be servants to one another and the world at large. But they would be to the world, not servants, but judges. Judging between right and wrong, good and bad, righteousness and lawlessness. In fact, this is what the Passover meal was pointing to. The liberation of the elect by virtue of Christ's victorious atonement for the kingdom's advancement through service, sacrifice, suffering, and judging. Giving the world an idea of what is right. The absolutes of right and wrong. Judas then exits, launches his act of betrayal, and meets Christ curiously, wonderfully, 
mysteriously in the Garden Gethsemane. In the Garden Gethsemane where it all began. For as Adam lost the world in the Garden of Eden, Christ would now gain the world in the Garden Gethsemane. He is then arrested, unjustly tried, sentenced, tortured, and led away to the tree at Calvary. And the men that held Jesus mocked him, smote him, and when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy! Who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spake they against him. Matthew's account adds this. In Matthew 27, 29 and following, And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. Now there are a number of things here that should be pointed out as additional symbology. Notice firstly, the crown of thorns. The crown of thorns symbolizes the curse of God. Originally, when Adam rebelled, the curse of God fell upon mankind as well as the entire global order. The world at that time, after the fall of Adam, was plunged into the darkness of death and destruction, of chaos and the void. And this was made clear when, after Adam's fall, there were thorns and thistles springing up within the Garden of Eden, defiling the garden, which flourished with flowers and vegetation, green and ripe and glorious. It was as if Adam, too, at that time, was crowned with thorns, crowned with the curse, signifying that the curse was placed upon his covenant headship, passing upon all of mankind, and especially the elect. So here now, Christ is crowned with thorns, Notice it's placed on his head, signifying that he is made a curse for the liberation of his people. He is the head of the elect, and therefore the curse which he took upon himself rests upon his covenant headship. It is as if he defiles his own head with thorns, becoming sin and a curse for his church, so that he might honor his head with victory, majesty, dominion, and a kingdom. Bringing his entire body, the church, to the throne of God's mercy, to the throne of God's forgiveness. And so in order to reverse the destruction which Adam brought upon the world and its sinful overgrowth of thorns and thistles, Christ had to willfully crown himself with the thorns, the thorny crown, so as to be a propitiation for his people. So Christ is willfully taking the crown of thorns from Adam and placing upon himself so as to liberate his elect that were lost in the loins of Adam. After addressing the daughters of Jerusalem, he is then brought to the cross. But instead of a scepter, a reed is placed in his right hand, signifying a trade-off from a ruling scepter to a bruised reed, since that is what Christ had to become for the transgression of his people. He had to become that bruised reed. Yes, the king of the universe... Yes, the one who is the Judah with the scepter, but now, because he is emptying himself, he's going to take upon himself the curse and the sin of his people. 
He's given now a reed. And that very reed is the reed that is used to smite him. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah says this. In Isaiah 42.3 and 53.5, A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. In Matthew, we also see the soldiers striking Jesus with the palm of their hands. You know, the scriptures could have said, and they hit him or they smote him. Very, very carefully, the scripture says, with the palms of their hands. Because the hand often symbolizes the will, as we think we do. Jesus sits at the right hand of God, testifying of the fact that he does the Father's will. I have come not to do my own will, but the one who sent me my Father's will. Sitting at the right hand of God, he does his Father's will. The hand symbolizes the will. Notice the testimony. John 5.30 and John 6.38 I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. In the case of the soldiers, it is as if they are saying, not thy will be done, but my will be done. And by my will, I will do all in my power to destroy you. That is what natural man seeks. They seek to use their will to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, the testimony of the Savior. Note also, these aren't just men. It wasn't the chief priests or the Pharisees, the scribes or any of the people that were smiting the Lord, but it was soldiers. The soldiers were smiting him. Note they were soldiers, which indicates that there are soldiers of wickedness, soldiers of evil, soldiers of iniquity, but there are also soldiers of righteousness. There are soldiers of darkness, soldiers of light, secular soldiers and sacred soldiers. And these groups are locked in a fierce battle. One seeks to destroy the kingdom of God, the other seeks to establish it. And this too is significant since the entire kingdom advance is one of a spiritual warfare, a battle, pitting man's will against God's will, man's law over against God's law, man's tyrannical dominion quest against God's righteous dominion quest. That's what our life is all about. To establish the kingdom of God, to go face to face against the wrath of man because we are the judges of the earth. And finally, they spit at him. Spitting is something one does to another in order to curse them. Job's miserable counsel saw him as cursed of God and he testifies of this very thing in Job 30 verse 10. They abhor me, they flee far from me and spare not to spit in my face. Moses relates how the brother who will not assist in raising a godly seed to his brother's widowed wife is publicly cursed and the way that is shown is by spitting in his face. Deuteronomy 25 9. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. Next we read in Matthew 27, 33 and 34. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, 
That is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Now, this is no accident. This is a contrived providential orchestration of the universe by God's will. Christ is brought to Golgotha, the place of a skull. And this too has an incredible gospel significance, which brings us once again right back to the Garden of of Eden. Right back to the Garden of Eden, where it all began in Genesis 3.15, where God says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. In other words, the seed of the woman is destined to crush the head of the serpent, or the skull of the serpent, if you will. So again, we have the connection. Genesis and the crucifixion. The garden where Adam lost it all, the garden where Christ regains it. And it was at that cross where this was about to take place once and for all time. Where there would be the final crushing of the serpent's head. At the third hour of the day, they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. They parted his garments and cast lots for his vesture. Christ is then hung between two other men, both of which are thieves, or as the scriptures identify them, malefactors. Now, Mark 15, verse 27 adds this, And with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, in Matthew's account, in Matthew 27, both men, and this is significant, both men join with the wicked by mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is critical for you to understand. Both of them, one on the left, one on the right, mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. We read this in Matthew 27, 38 and following. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also, the chief priests, mocking him with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Notice verse 44. The thieves also, both men, the thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. They both were mocking the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in confederacy with the scribes, the chief priests and the elders. It's important to note, important to note that both of these men began initially to rail upon the Lord Jesus Christ in hatred, accusation, and slander. So who are they? Who are these men? Well, firstly, we know that they're both sons of Adam. Initially, obviously, without redeeming grace. Secondly, initially, they side with the elders of the people, with the Pharisees. The soldiers, by mocking and cursing Jesus, they are hateful men. And their hatred is, is evident. They're saying what they believe out of their heart is, is spewing all kinds of things. Thirdly, they both have been sentenced to death for their crimes, which also were sins. Number four, one is situated on the right, the other on the left. Five, both are unable to do anything whatsoever to alleviate their situation since they're both nailed to a wooden cross. They cannot do a thing. They are immobilized. They cannot help themselves. 
humanly speaking, nothing, nothing whatsoever can undo their fate. They were there to die. And finally, without divine intervention, they are not only facing death. At this point, they're facing the judgment of God and an eternity in hell. But then something incredible happens. Something wonderful happens. One of the thieves, without any fanfare, there were no outward miracles. We don't see any doves coming upon him. There were no good works that he could have done. He was immobilized. He was not participating in any ritual observances. There was no real confession of faith. But suddenly, one of the thieves changes his entire attitude, his entire outlook, his entire world and life view, his entire testimony takes a dramatic shift. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering a moment ago was cursing and now answering rebuked this other thief saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. So after joining in with all of the mockers, all of a sudden, one of the men begins to change his whole manner of speech and rebukes the other. He starts to fight with the other thief. We might even speculate that the man that has changed his heart, that had a change of heart, is situated on the right, typically where the sheep are placed, while the man who remains hateful, slanderous, and blasphemous is situated on the left, where the goats usually reside. Now consider the man's testimony and his change of heart. All of a sudden, this this incredible epiphany, this incredible experiential experience, without fanfare, without ritual, without anything, he is brought face to face with the fear of God. Doth not thou fear God? At this point, it seems as if he suddenly understands that he is in a state of terrible condemnation. So recognizing this, he confesses that he is guilty. Notice what he says in verse 41. We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. This is one of the signs of salvation. Self-condemnation in light of the law of God. Self-condemnation. We see the law, we say, yes, I'm guilty. And this is why Jesus tells his disciples that they are to agree with the adversary while they're on the way. Notice, Matthew 5, 25 and Luke 12, 58 and following. Agree with thine adversary quickly. Very strange commandment. Agree with thine adversary. I'm going to agree with my enemy. Well, agree with thine adversary quickly. Whilst thou art on the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. So when thou goest with thine adversary to the magistrate, as thou art in the way, give diligence that thou mayest be delivered from him, from the adversary, lest he hail thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and the officer cast thee into prison. The adversary here, is nothing less than the condemning power of the law of God. Because that is the adversary of mankind. 
Because that law condemns all sinful men justly and rewards them with damnation, a due reward, a just reward for their deeds in a very righteous fashion. So God identifies his condemning power of the law, even himself, as an adversary and an enemy of all those who are outside of the redeeming grace of God. Notice what Jeremiah tells us in Lamentations chapter 2. The Lord had swallowed up all the inhabitants of Jacob and hath not pitied. He hath thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He hath brought them down to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. He hath bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion He poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was as an enemy. He had swallowed up Israel. He had swallowed up all her palaces. He had destroyed his strongholds and hath increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. And so those who are redeemed, like this this thief, agree that the law's condemnation upon them is just. It's holy, it's righteous, it's just. And that God is right in leaving that condemning sentence upon them. God is righteous if He was to leave that condemning sentence upon each and every one of us. And this thief understood that. And having understood this, he is humbled by that reality. The 19th century pastor, the Reverend Dr. William Payson, explains it this way. He says, When a convicted guilty sinner who feels condemned by the law of God and his own conscience and fears the sentence of eternal condemnation from the mouth of his judge hereafter, hears and believes the glad tidings of salvation. They cause hope in the mercy of God to spring up in his anxious, troubled breast. He says to himself, I am a miserable, guilty creature. I have rebelled against my Creator, broken His law, and thus exposed myself to its dreadful curse. True religion consists in a proper mixture of fear of God and of hope in His mercy. And wherever either of these things is entirely wanting, there can be no true religion. But no man can sincerely hate and mourn over his transgressions of any law unless he feels and sees that it is a just and good law. Now, if he does not see this, if the law which he has transgressed appears in his view unjust or not good, he will hate and condemn not himself, but the law and the lawmaker. Every real penitent then sees and acknowledges that the law which he has violated is holy and just and good and glorious, that he is justly condemned by and that he should have no reason to complain to God if he were left to perish forever. He can say, I deserve the curse and let no one ever think hardly of God or of his law though I should perish forever. He says, I am altogether without excuse nor do I wish to offer any. No, Lord, I deserve it all. Notice he's agreeing with the adversary. Nor can I escape it, 
but through thy rich mercy and sovereign grace. This is what the thief was saying. His own view of his state and the validity of his sentence was a testimony of a change of heart and mind. There was obvious a paradigm shift in attention and focus, but this self-condemnation is not enough, nor is the justification of God and His law alone enough to say that there has been a regeneration event. Because many today believe they are sinners, and they say glibly, well, I know I'm a sinner, I know I'm a sinner. They may even say that the law is just, yes, the law is righteous, the law is holy, just and good. But that is not enough. They must look to Jesus as their only hope for salvation. And that is where the operation of faith comes into play. They not only condemn themselves, but then they look to the only salvation possible, which is apart from themselves, divorced from themselves. They look to the Christ. And that's where the operation of faith comes into play. Note the thief does not end by condemning himself or even vindicating Jesus. He goes further, asking the Lord to have mercy upon him in verse 42. Notice what he says. And he said unto him, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Notice, he says unto Jesus, Lord. He calls him Lord. This was a marked shift from just moments ago when he was collaborating with the reprobate thief in the slandering and the mocking of the Christ. Something happened. Something wonderful happened. Something changed. And it was evident. It was measurable. It was real. It was experiential. It was experimental. It was a great epiphany. There was a verbalized public testimony of faith, not a personalized secret individual religiosity. You know, a lot of people say today, well, I'm very private in my faith. Hogwash! Nonsense! That is not the faith of the Christian faith. That is not the faith of the thief. That is not the faith of Christianity. An individualized religiosity, a religious idea of individual piety. That is not Christianity. The thief was already verbalizing, evangelizing, apologizing to the glorious Christ in the face of that wicked thief. So he begins immediately by witnessing to that condemned man hanging alongside him. Lord, remember me. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus says to him, without a moment's hesitation, Jesus says to him, without a moment's hesitation, verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Now there are a number of things here which must be pointed out concerning the man's change of heart and the Lord's answer. Firstly, the change in man's heart, any man that experiences the grace of God is a sovereign act of God. It does not come about by any willful inclination of man. And this is what John intended when he wrote in John 1, 12 and 13, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe upon his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Secondly, 
when regeneration energizes an individual, he sees his sin, he truly, honestly loathes it, he condemns himself and justifies not himself, but the law of God that condemns him. Thirdly, regeneration then turns an individual to see the Lord Jesus Christ as the only hope for everlasting mercy and calls upon him in faith, trusting that he will be merciful. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Fourth, Christ's answer not only proves that he hears the plea of repentant sinners, but that there is a future state within the realm of eternity which Jesus calls paradise. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. There's something very curious about Christ's referral to this eternal state of happiness as paradise. Why didn't he say, today you'll be with me in heaven? Was not this redeemed man going to heaven? Well, yes, he was, absolutely. But that is not the word the Lord uses. And he does not use the word heaven, but replaces it with the word paradise for a very special reason. And then once again, he wants to bring us right back to the garden. The word he uses is of an oriental origin, which means a flourishing park or an orchard of fruit or a garden type of an abode. Paradise with vegetation and flowers, without the thorns, without the thistles, pointing us right back to Eden, referring to an Eden-like garden of bliss and happiness, and once again pointing us back to his work of repairing and restoring original Eden that was lost in rebellious Adam. And this is also who, after his resurrection, he reveals himself to Mary first as the gardener. And herein he begins the recultivation of the world, the new Eden. But fifthly, Jesus is careful also to use the word today. Today is a time reference, which indicates that upon the death of the redeemed, there is an immediate transference from this world to the next, to an Eden-like paradise commonly called heaven. Today, today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. John tries to explain what this is like. Note the language of Eden's garden in Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river with there the tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Paul tells the saints that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He too was referring to an immediate change of residency upon the death of an individual for the redeemed paradise, but for the unrepentant reprobate from the make-believer, from the professor of religiosity, misery. Which brings us to our final point. While the promise of paradise was made to the penitent thief, we read of no promise made 
to the other. Therefore we can know that there will be those that do not receive the promise of paradise, yet all will experience a transference of residency at the time of their death. Jesus explains the future of the hypocrite and the reprobate. In Luke 13, beginning in 23, Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut the door, and ye begin to stand without and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. We have had communion. We stood under the teaching of a faithful pastor. We even preached the gospel. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. And so, Jesus is crucified with the penitent thief, promising him that he shall be saved, even while he was a sinner, without any hope of doing any sort of good or evil. He couldn't merit God's favor. He just received God's favor. The Apostle Paul gives this comfort to all of God's people. In Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8 and following, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, 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 Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved. We shall be saved. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. Through Him. For if when we were enemies, when we were enemies, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. We were reconciled by the death of His Son. Much more. Being reconciled, we shall be saved. We shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. This is the word of the Lord. May God be pleased to bless it to us that we would be like that thief that called upon him to say unto him, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom so that we could hear on that day enter into the joy of the Lord, my faithful servant. Amen.